for this morning is from Colossians 1, verse 24, and we go over to all of chapter 2. It reads thus, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, 
or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human perceptions and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Heather. Good morning, church family. Good to be with you. Happy 4th of July. I think that this qualifies as the 4th of July. It's not the 4th in America yet, but it's the 4th here, <clears throat> so we're going to claim it. Um, it's good to be with you. Uh, we're going to continue our series in Colossians this week. Uh, the title and theme of the series is Returning to Our Roots. We flourish in life only as we continue walking in Jesus as we received him. So last week we did uh, verses 1 through 23, and the theme of that message was Jesus is the hope of the gospel. He is preeminent. He's present. He made everything. Everything exists for him, and he is in the middle holding all things together. So because of that, when the wild currents of our hearts and the wild currents of the culture pressure us and begin to carry us away, we look to him to be free from its grip and to bring us back to shore. Jesus is the hope of the gospel, not us trying to swim back on our own strength or to be clever. This week we'll be finishing chapter 1 and we'll be also doing chapter 2 along with it. And the theme for this message is Jesus is the substance of the gospel. So part of the good news of the gospel is that it is not an ideal, it is a reality. It is not a construction of our minds, it is something in the real world. It is a part of real history, it is part of something that is happening right now. The substance of it is Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming and uh, being the substance of the gospel. It depends on you, on who you are and what you have done. We pray that uh, today, as we hear your word, that uh, you would empower me to speak it, that you empower all of us to receive it. Um, uh, thank you for the, the message that this was to the Colossians and the message that it is for us today that we'd receive that, Lord. Holy Spirit, we need you to apply it to our hearts, to empower us to be the people, um, uh, the people that you've called us to be and to be shaped by your word, by the gospel. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So first we're going to take a look at uh, chapter 1. There's this first section here, chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 24, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. That's why I cut this off last week. We didn't do the whole first chapter is because Paul kind of begins something else here. I see uh, that he begins to talk about uh, his struggle, his ministry, his suffering, um, and and he summarizes his ministry here. But uh, even though he talks about it generally, he also specifically applies it to the Colossians. Um, Paul wants the Colossians to know that even though they've never met face to face, He struggles on their behalf. At the end of the letter, he says, uh, he asks them to remember his chains. He says in chapter 4, verse 18, remember my chains. In, uh, and the, and so the, he has these chains and these sufferings that Paul is going through it are the result of the proclamation of the gospel, his ministry. In chapter 4, verse 3, we see, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So that ministry of the gospel that Paul was given as a steward and as a minister, he's suffering because of that. And Epaphras and the Colossians have benefited from that ministry and from his suffering. Far from being the forgotten church that we talked about last week, that Colossians was forgotten by the world around them as the the city went into decline whenever the roads were moved away. Far from being forgotten by God, they're receiving the benefit of Jesus' sufferings and his minister's sufferings and struggles. Now, speaking of those sufferings and struggles... Paul makes uh, a very significant statement here in in chapter 1, verse 24. He says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And we have to talk about this because the way that that reads, somebody could take that and say, okay, Jesus, there's something lacking about his afflictions, that he falls short of what, what he was supposed to do. There's something lacking in his suffering. Now, that is not what is meant here. It does not mean that Christ's atonement was lacking in any way and, or that his suffering needed to be added to, that Paul was finishing Jesus' saving work, that Paul is suffering so that we would be saved. That's not what is meant. Um, that would be contrary not only to many individual scriptures, but the whole redemptive story of scripture uh, would run counter to that. So a lot of views have been offered on this, but I think a key to understanding it is the, uh, the, if we follow the appearances of the word present, it's, I think it's as simple as that. The word present, is, is, uh, it appears twice here in verse 22 and in verse 28. The aim of the gospel is that in the end, people would be presented to God ready in a fitting way in an honoring way to God, that they would be presented as they should. In verse 22, we see Jesus' part in that, in his sufferings, that he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So that is the saving work of Christ's suffering. Believers' sin is removed by his suffering work on their behalf. The atoning work is done. We don't add to that. Paul doesn't add to that. 
The atoning work is done. But then in verse 28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul, his ministry, his sufferings, plays a role in people being presented mature in Christ. And so the role that he plays, he says it here, we're warning everyone, we're teaching everyone, we're contending for the gospel. That is his role to play, not a sacrifice. Paul is not a sacrifice on behalf of the Colossians. Jesus was a sacrifice that could never be improved on. It's done. It's in full, finished, paid. Paul, on the other hand, is saying, I have a role to play. I have some suffering to endure so that you could receive the gospel, so that you could be made mature in Christ. And it's not just Paul. It's the church as well. Paul's not the last one to suffer in redemptive history. At this point in your life, there's people who have suffered, who have struggled so that you would hear the gospel, so that you would receive the gospel, so you'd see the substance of the gospel. So let me ask you, who has suffered and struggled so that you would be presented in an honoring way to God? Who has struggled for you? I can personally bear witness that this church family right here struggles and labors so that people would see the substance of the gospel. I've seen this firsthand. I've experienced this. I think of the MC leaders. I think of the MC hosts who open up their homes and invest relationally in people's lives. Uh, In the first service, we had up here up front the Clay family. Their MC is the one that my family spent the last two years in. And Chad was gone, the husband. He was gone for a a whole year serving uh, in a galaxy far, far away. And his wife, Jessica, opened up their home week in and week out so that we could gather together in their home. And she prepared delicious meals for us each time and let us bug her and the kids until late in the evening so that we could mature in Christ so that we could see the substance of the gospel as we gather together, serve one another, and rehearse the gospel. It makes me think of Lauren Dalton, who was also in the first service, also up front, so I had to point her out, um, who leads our women's ministry. Lauren works tirelessly and excellently so that women can see Jesus and grow in him. And that was actually the theme of the, 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 the women's conference that was just held. They were, it was on Colossians as well. And it was about beholding Jesus and seeing him. And that's what Lauren works for. And she wants women to be presented to God, mature in him. I think of E.J. Ayuman, who is also in the first service uh, and, and also think about her team, everyone who, who serves on her team uh, in the children's ministry. Let me just say this. If they didn't toil on our behalf, we couldn't see or hear anything right now. Because there'd be millions of kids in this room, right? Literally, there's millions of kids over there, all right? Uh, they at least make enough noise to sound like millions. Um, But if they did not do that, if they did not play that role in in toiling for us and struggling for us, it would hinder us. It would hinder us hearing the gospel, contemplating the gospel, and therefore hinder us from being maturing in Christ and being presented mature. 
So we're thankful for them. I think of my parents. I think of people who have discipled me. My parents talk about struggle, talk about suffering, suffering for me. They did. They suffered for me. I can't say that enough. Um, People who have reminded me of the gospel, people who have walked with me through seasons where I was no fun to be with, and they walked alongside me. Even people who I've never met face to face and have yet been a great encouragement to me. So we have all these people who have worked on our behalf so that we'd see the gospel in a very substantial way. It's up to us to recall that. It's up to us to discern that and to bring it to mind and think about, you know what, there, there has been many people in my life who have struggled so I would see the gospel in a substantial way so that it would not just be talk. It would not be an abstract idea. I had flesh and blood living it out, suffering for me, showing me the gospel. And this leads us to mystery, okay? We see it in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and then repeat it again in 2-2. As I said last week, there were some mystery cults in uh, Colossi's neck of the woods. They would... These mystery cults, would, they would claim that they've got this higher, secret, mysterious knowledge, this higher spiritual experience, that if you just join them and submit to their process, you'd get it. You'd get it. The problem was that the hype was all they had. It's all they had. That was the best part, is the hype. They were, as you, say, as you would say, all packaging, no product. All smoke and no fire. All sound, no fury. My favorite from Texas. All hat, no cattle. If, you're, if you grew up Lutheran, all foam, no beer. That was what they were. It's inevitable. This right here is inevitable for anything that it offers an appealing exterior, but at its core is a substitute for Christ. You can dress it up all you want. You can make, you can hype it up. You can get excited about it. But if at its core, it is a substitute for Christ, this is an inevitable result. Disappointment. It cannot deliver. Have you ever seen those knockoff products on Amazon? And when I say knockoff, I'm not talking about the legit ones. They're like, hey, we're a knockoff. We're just being up front with you. We're trying to give you the real thing cheaper. I'm talking about the pretenders, okay? When you're on Amazon, you're looking for something. You see a low price. You're like, okay, open new tab. I'm going to check that out too because that's a really good price. It's too good to be true. And, uh, but you look at the, the first thing you see is a picture. The picture is exactly like the name brand. It's like they've got the name brand item in the picture. You're like, okay, okay. Could this be real? You keep reading and the description has something off. You're just reading. You're like, "Uh, something's, something's funny. Okay. Um, so you come at that point to a crossroads. You can pay the cheaper price and feel the excitement that comes with the illusion of receiving the real thing for this cheap price. But usually you know in the back of your mind, I don't think this is real. I don't think it is. But you can can go that way. When it comes time, the postman delivers it, you open it up, all of that excitement dissipates because you got what you paid for. 
It was better that that thing remained a mystery. It was, that was the best part about it. It's just thinking about, I might get this for this price. That was the best part. Because once it was revealed, disappointment. Total disappointment. Paul is talking about here a mystery that is worth knowing. That it is, it's, brings gladness when it is revealed. That you get to enjoy the anticipation before it's revealed. And then when it's revealed, it's even better because you get all that you anticipated. You get all of it. It doesn't let you down. So here in about uh, a month, uh, we've got a baby on the way. Uh, due August 8th. The baby's gender is a mystery right now. Um, Not because of medical technology. We told the doctor that we didn't want to know the gender of the baby. Uh, We wanted it to be a mystery to us. We want that mystery to be revealed at birth. And uh, here in about, it should be four weeks, but the last last couple have been uh, uh, late, so it could be five, six, I don't know. But um, we'll get to see that mystery revealed in due time. And when it's revealed, we won't be disappointed. It will stir up joy. We'll know whether we have a fourth princess in the house or whether we'll have our first boy. Our hearts, either way, will be gladdened when this mystery is revealed. In the same way, on a much bigger scale, the mystery of Christ is worth knowing. Now, in one way, this mystery has already been revealed. That's why we see chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where mystery comes in the first time. We see it in the past tense. It has been revealed. That God has planned for redemption for not just one people group, the Jewish people, but for people everywhere. This was a revelation in Paul's time because it was thought before that salvation was only for the Jews. But God was revealing to the world that through Christ, the Gentiles would receive salvation. And that God, through Christ, would not dwell in a tent or a tabernacle or a temple, but he would dwell in his people. And he would be their hope of entering into the glory to come. So that was revealed. But there's another way in which this mystery is still being revealed in its fullness. And we see that in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Paul says his hope is that they would reach all the assurance, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This is a hope of his. This is not past tense. This is something he wants them to come into. This is something that we're coming into. That as we have people struggle and suffer on our behalf and toil so that we would see Christ, we're coming into the knowledge that mystery is being revealed. Not the mystery, the, the, the mystery that Christ is the Messiah. That's been revealed. But there's so much more to reveal. We don't hear the gospel and then we move on from it. Like, I've heard that before. There is so much to be revealed about Christ and how he gives you victory, gives you freedom, gives you comfort, gives you rest in the myriad situations and circumstances of life. And in those situations, we need each other. We need each other. And God has given us to each other to show each other that. Because in the moment when we're anxious, when we're scared, when we're angry, all we can see is our, is our emotions or we're looking through the lens of our emotions. It's hard to see the gospel. 
and other people, other believers can show us the gospel. They can help us see the gospel, that it is not talk. It's not someone coming up to you and saying, hey, by the way, cheer up because God. No, they come to you and they show you the gospel. They suffer on your behalf. They give you their time. They show you the love embodied in flesh and blood. And so that is being revealed on an ongoing basis as God works through his word and through his people. Paul continues about Christ and he says, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's Paul again with one of those statements that are all-encompassing. Because Paul, knowing that everything is in Christ, he goes to the limits, the ends of human language. This is all we can say. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him. That's the best I can do with human language. And it it doesn't really capture it, but that's the best we can do. And he just makes these all-encompassing statements. It's all there. It's impossible to hype Jesus. Human language does not have the tools, does not have the scale to hype Jesus. The most extravagant claim you can make about him falls short of the reality. When Christ is revealed to human hearts, it's not just a powerful encounter. It's an existential encounter. It's on that level. We behold our creator, our redeemer, our Lord. And in the revelation of him, we find everything we need. Everything. When he is revealed, when he's truly revealed to anxious and worried hearts, they find rest. When he's revealed to broken hearts, they are comforted. When he's revealed to angry and bitter hearts, they become free to forgive. That's what the revelation of Christ does. Now we come back to the central section of the letter in in, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. We referenced these verses last week because they basically contain the movement and rhythm of the entire letter. Verses 6 and 7 here are in a way a hinge for the whole letter that before them was primarily about the Colossians receiving Christ and after is primarily about the Colossians walking in Christ. I say primarily because this is not only the hinge, this is also the rhythm. Paul keeps going back from here to how they receive Christ. He goes, this is how you receive Christ. This is how you walk in him. This is how you receive Christ. This is how you walk in him. And that's the rhythm of the letter. And it's encompassed right here in 6 and 7. I see this as Paul calling them to return to their roots in a couple of ways. One is whenever he's calling them to go back as you received Christ, there's, there's roots back there where you began. There's also roots in the sense that where are you rooted? Where are you drawing from? Where is your hope? Inspect your roots and inspect where these teachings and these lifestyles and these substitutes, where they're, they're, they're being presented to you, where are their roots? Where will they put your roots if you embrace them? If you go that direction, where will your roots be? Consider it. And those substitutes, although ultimately empty, have an appeal to us in the moment. 
Yes, when we talk about it in the abstract, it's easy. It's like, okay, substitute, real thing, easy. I can do that. Not so easy in the moment when your heart is rebelling, when your heart is reaching for substitutes because it's reaching for anything it can get. And it's not tending to rest in Christ. It's wanting anything it can get. And it reaches for things. It creates desires for substitutes. Like I said last week, the wild currents of our hearts and the culture around us create this riptide effect that we cannot swim against in our own strength. We cannot overcome our own desires and our own flesh through our own strength. The pressure we feel to reach for substitutes is the same. Sometimes we may intellectually know that Christ, he's the substance, and this thing is not Christ, but we find in ourselves a desire to reach for it anyway. We're crazy. We're kind of crazy. We reach for things even when we know it's going to do to us, it's going to empty us, it's going to ruin us. We reach for them. Other times, we may, not, we may be deceived. We may not know that this thing really is the substitute. Not realizing what we are being presented with. Because sometimes they do a good job of presenting to us that, and pretending that they're the real thing. That, it, that to embrace them would to be embracing Christ. And I think that Paul's warnings to the Colossians in this letter speak to both of these scenarios. So let's look at verses 8 through 23. Paul begins speaking to some of these features of the false teachings that the Colossians are encountering. Now, notice that one thing that Paul does not do is he does not compare Christ to the substitutes. There is no comparison. Because to compare would to be considering the qualities of each and like making a list of pros and cons and and matching them up against each other. And maybe, maybe whenever you count it all up, Jesus edges it out in the end. That's not what Paul is doing. You don't compare truth and lies. There's truth and lies. You don't compare real and fake. If you know something's real and the other thing is fake, why compare them any longer? Why compare As long as you compare, you allow that substitute to make its case to the affections of your heart. God gave us that tool in our minds to be able to analyze, to be able to compare. It's very useful when used in the right situation. Used in the wrong situation, disastrous. When we compare Christ with substitutes and we're like, we're like looking at like, hmm, maybe... You know, I have the pros over here if I, if I go with, with Christ, but, you know, I got to do this. But over here, he's got these benefits. We shouldn't be using that tool in that situation because we're presenting, we're, we're allowing that substitute to make its case to our hearts when really, in the end, inside, ultimately, behind it is a big lie. So why compare? Why even go down that road? Let me ask you. What are you comparing Christ with today? What is in your mind? What is in your heart and being presented as a substitute for the real thing? To not walk in the gospel, to not walk in 
the example that you've received, but instead to embrace this substitute because it's got all these benefits, because it looks appealing. What has been presented to you that you're considering against the revelation you have of Christ? Are you having that conversation in your mind that if I forgive this person, there's these implications and these pros and cons. If I don't, then I got the wrong conversation. There are moments when a situation is ambiguous and we're trying to discern which way would best embrace the truth of the gospel. In that situation, comparison is a useful tool. But like in the example that I just used, forgiveness, we know what God has called us to do. We know what God has called us to do. In that case, we don't compare. We contrast. If I go down this road of bitterness and unforgiveness, what it's presenting to me, the benefits, all a lie. It won't fulfill me. It won't give me the better life. If I manipulate people, it's all a lie. The benefits that come from manipulating people, it's all hype. In the end, I'm going to be left empty. In the end, I won't be satisfied. It's a lie. In verses 8 through 10, Paul continues, and he urges the Colossians not to be taken captive by philosophy an empty deceit. Now, philosophy here, a word on that, because the way that it reads, it would seem like Paul is saying the study of philosophy and the practice of philosophy is evil. Don't do it. I've heard people preach it that way. It's not the meaning. Philosophy in Paul's day did not exactly have that meaning. Philosophy was really big in Greek culture. So philosophy was used and uh, was spoken about a lot, and it was used broadly. Um, whenever he says philosophy, we're not to take that as in the way that when we say philosophy, we mean like study philosophy at college, practice philosophy. Paul is probably talking about a specific philosophy and saying, he could be saying the philosophy because whenever he says this, he starts to define it. He's not saying, hey, don't, don't, don't use logic. Don't use your head don't think things through. You know, that's philosophy. That's the practice of philosophy. So if we say, let's not do philosophy, that's excluding a lot of things that God really made our minds to do and that are healthy and good. But there are specific philosophies that are contrary to Christ. They're not just the practice of thinking things through and using logic. They're presenting to us a different worldview that is opposed to Christ. And Paul has in mind here a particular philosophy that detracts from the centrality of Christ and undermines our confidence in his sufficiency to be and do for us all that we need. This philosophy and the proponents of it, they claimed to have the way to the fuller life if you followed their rules and their program. But Paul exposes them. He doesn't waste any time. He not say the pros of this philosophy. He just says it's empty deceit. It's a lie. There's nothing to it. Just goes straight to it. While they're claiming this, while they're saying that you can, you can have full knowledge if you submit to these teachings, you're just really being taken captive. That's a, that's a rough picture right there. People who are being deceived and they're, 
their wills are being committed without their minds even knowing enough to know what they're committing to. They're being taken captive. They're being deceived. So despite the packaging and the claims, these teachings are in reality, they're empty. They're devoid of moral and spiritual value. But on the other hand, Paul says, let me contrast that with Christ. Can't compare because they got nothing to compare. They're empty. Nothing. You can't get any spiritual growth from them. But Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. All of it. None of it's over there. All of it is right here in Christ. And Paul is telling the Colossians, remember how you received Christ. You received the fullness of God in him. You received the fullness and you were filled in him. There is no need to supplement him with this teaching. In verses 11 through 14, we look at legalism or trying to earn God's favor by following rules. And that is contrasted with grace through faith in Christ. First, circumcision is addressed. And not a very common topic for us today. Not a whole lot of people debating in the church about circumcision. But circumcision was a big deal back then. A big deal. Many non-Jewish Christians were being pressured to be circumcised as this was a big deal under the Jewish law that the Jews had been under for hundreds of years. But Paul says this, those in Christ have already received a spiritual circumcision. Chapter 2, verse 11, it's made without hands. It's done. What he is saying is, is that Jesus' flesh was literally torn away so that you who are in him would be no longer slaves to the flesh and walk in its corrupt ways. His flesh was torn from him as he was sacrificed in your place so that you in him would not have to walk in its corrupt ways so that you would be circumcised in your hearts spiritually. And as for the legal aspect, the demands of God's law on you, because people were telling these Colossian believers, they're saying, you still have to, yeah, you got Christ, but you still have to Follow this and follow that. This rule, that rule, this regulation. Don't touch this. Don't touch that. Don't eat this. The demands of God's law on the Colossians and on you and me today were resolved in Christ at the cross. The picture that is being given here is when the Romans, their practice of whenever they crucified someone, they took a notice that said what that person was being crucified for. This is a crime they committed. This is the law. And you deserve to be crucified. And they nailed it up on the cross. Paul says here that God did that to our record of debt and fulfilled the demands of the law in our place forevermore. He nailed it to the cross. For all who trust in Jesus, God has done this to their debt at the cross, setting aside any demands that the law could have anymore on us. So the question is, what regulations are you submitting to today in the hope that you will earn God's favor through it? Yes, you believe the gospel. You believed in Christ. You believe what God's word says. But then there's something nagging you and, and you can't let go of, oh, if I do, th- if I do this or if I don't do this, God 
He's not going to be pleased anymore with me. He's not going to love me anymore. I'm going to be disqualified. I'm not going to be accepted anymore. I'm not going to be approved. The thing is, is that's not how grace works. We were approved, qualified, accepted in Christ alone. And those, those things that we do now are because we are accepted, because we are qualified, because we were approved, not in order to get approved or qualified. Not the gospel. I love our, our very own Lauren Flores. When she was teaching on Colossians 2 at the women's conference, she said this. She said, we can. I love that she said can because in Christ, we can. We can and should reject any expectation or rule that does not come from God's word. And God's word, brothers and sisters, God's word does not place on you who are in Christ rules and regulations to now, after Christ has made you accepted, to try to earn acceptance once again. We do not practice Jesus plus. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus that. Jesus, but I need to add this in order for God to really love me. We don't practice that. We don't believe that. It's not the gospel. We practice Jesus because Jesus, therefore. We practice chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where he says, As you received Christ, therefore walk in him. You received Christ as acceptance, as qualification, as grace from the Father. So walk in him. In verses 16 through 19, Paul addresses spiritual elitism. And this theme just continues Colossian, the Colossians had people looking down on them, judging them, making them feel like they were spiritually lower class. And they were feeling the pressure to fit in with this group that gave all the appearance of being super spiritual. And we've all been there. We've seen people who, uh, you know, we look at them and we're like, uh, wow, I don't fit in with that. I don't think I could do that. I'm not at their level. Sometimes we've been told by those people or indicated from them in some way, a group of people or a person who's indicated to you or communicated to you that you're lesser because you don't do this. That's what they were experiencing. But Paul doesn't even mess around. He says, don't listen to them. They're chasing shadows. You have the substance. Christ. Those things that they're making a big deal about right now, they all meant to point to Christ. And they're chasing them if the, as if that was the substance. But it's shadows. What judgment are you receiving today that you shouldn't be receiving? Are you judging yourself? Are you looking at your performance? Are you looking at your sin? Are you looking at your life and judging yourself and saying, you know what? I'm lesser. I'm a lesser Christian. I deserve this or that. You know what? This is not... This is hope here. This is not in your hands. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 12, who qualifies you? Your Father in heaven, not you. You never were able to look at your performance and look what you did and say, qualified, and qualify yourself. Your heavenly Father qualified you in Christ. Therefore, you also cannot disqualify yourself. That is not within your hands. This is grace. This is what the Father has done through his Son for us. 
And so Paul, when he talks about these people who would seek to disqualify the Colossian believers, he says, don't let them disqualify you. Your heavenly father has already qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. All of their hyped up talk, all of the, all of the, asceticism and the worship of angels and the going on in detail about visions, it's all hype. It's packaging. It's smoke. And it's not only that, but it's kept them from reaching true spiritual maturity because in being puffed up in spiritual pride, they haven't rooted themselves in Christ from whom the real nourishment for true spiritual growth comes. What disqualification are you feeling today you shouldn't be? And we're going to sum it up by looking at this last section here, verses 20 through 23. Paul sums it up very beautifully in two statements. We're going to take the first statement first, or the second statement first, verse 23. He says that these teachings that entail strict observance of rules and severity to the body, they have wisdom? No. The appearance of wisdom. The appearance of wisdom. When you look at someone with high self-discipline and who takes their body to the extremes in pursuit of spiritual growth, it can be mistaken for wisdom. And you know what? If that's something that is powered by Christ, if they're doing that because of Christ and not in their own strength, then there's wisdom because it's powered by Christ and in whom all the, all the riches of wisdom are in. But if they're doing it in themselves, it's just an appearance. Outside the Facebook feed, outside the Instagram feed, where they can't put the filters on, where they can't just take a snapshot of their most perfect moment and present this illusion that, everything, that every moment of their life is lived perfectly like this. Outside of that, Paul is saying there's an indulgence of the flesh that they cannot stop. They cannot stop it. Because they're self-powered, human-powered, and they cannot save themselves from that riptide. When they get caught in it, they're going to get carried away by the wild currents of their heart and the culture. Their self-discipline won't save them. Their self-made religion won't save them. As for the Colossians and for all of us who have trusted in Christ, Paul has a question. If you have died with Christ and have therefore died to the world and the demonic powers that rule in it, why would you submit again to these ways that the world uses to pursue spiritual growth? So what, what self-religion are you participating in? Whatever it is, it will never be able to deliver. It will never be able to put you where you need to be. It can't get you out of where you're at, where you're stuck. The more you lean into it, the emptier you will become. But there's hope, and this is where we'll end. The hope that's been presented throughout is that Jesus is the substance of the gospel. Because Jesus was our substitute, we don't have to accept any substitute for him. Jesus took our place so we could be filled in him. He took it on. And we don't have to accept these substitutes because he freed us from having to accept them. Now, uh, Kento, I believe, is going to come up here and he's going to lead us in both a personal confession 
in response to this, and he's also going to lead us as a church family in a, uh, in a confession together. Well, we'll confess, and then he's going to lead us in uh, communion, where we are going to participate in and partake of his table, where we see once again that Christ is not words or abstractions or an illusion. He gave his body, he gave his blood, he gave, he's the substance of the gospel so that we could partake of him and be filled in him.